Jesus before the council. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and other leaders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter was following far behind and eventually came to the courtyard of the high priest's house. He went in, sat with the guards and waited to see what was going to happen to Jesus. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, there was no testimony they could use. Finally, two men were found who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, Yes, it is as you say. And in the future you will see me, the Son of Man, sitting at God's right hand in the place of power and coming back on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror, shouting, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He must die. Then they spit in Jesus' face and hit him with their fists. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you that time? Peter denies Jesus. Meanwhile, as Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, a servant girl came over and said to him, You were one of those with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't know the man, he said. A little later, some other bystanders came over to him and said, You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter said, I swear by God, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went away, crying bitterly. Judas hangs himself. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and other leaders met again to discuss how to persuade the Roman government to sentence Jesus to death. Then they bound him and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and other leaders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the money onto the floor of the temple and went out and hanged himself. The leading priests picked up the money. We can't put it in the temple treasury, they said, since it's against the law to accept money paid for murder. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field, and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. That is why the field is still called the field of blood. This fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the prize at which he was valued by the people of Israel, and purchased the potter field as the Lord directed. I invite you to uh, turn to Matthew, the end of Matthew 26 and the start of Matthew 27. And again, I feel like my task as we come to this message is to, to name a, a a lie 
that you have grown up with in our society that the, the stories of these two men, Peter and Judas, uh, clearly demonstrate is a lie. But for many of us, if you've grown up in Tasmania, in Australia, you'll have picked up through your skin uh, and, and will find yourself believing the lie, uh, even though part of you knows it is a lie. And this is the lie, that there isn't really good and evil, there isn't right and wrong, that ultimately your task is to be true to your feeling world. And if you're true to your feeling world, then, then everything's okay. And then... In our society, because we don't believe there's right and wrong, we actually don't know what to do with people who do things we believe are wrong. And so what we do is we write them off. We cancel them. And we've just talked about what it's like for being a prisoner coming out in a society that doesn't know what to do with prisoners. But it's getting worse and worse. So if people believe... Uh, or follow a, a side of politics you don't agree with. You'll, it's interesting watching the language that is coming even from our politicians. They start to use the language of good and evil to describe people with opposing political views because we don't have an understanding of good and evil. We don't understand the significance of it. And so we see in these two men who make profound mistakes, we see lessons that we desperately need to learn. And so if you are on social media at all, I hope that you'll be able to, through the lens of Peter's life and Judas' life, you'll be able to be a bit wiser about how you curate your Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or, heaven help us, TikTok feed. Uh, because th this lie will be coming at you constantly. And again, that your task as a follower of Jesus is to know what it means to live in the light. So here we have the story of two people who have failed and two people who know they've failed. And chances are, if you've been around the block more than a few years, there will be moments in your life that you look back on that you're not proud of. Is that true? Can you identify moments in your life as you look back on moments of pain where you consciously chose against your heart? Now, this is where our society doesn't understand the difference. The Bible makes clear, and Jesus has just told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What Jesus is saying, there's more than one part of you. And there is, you have a heart that knows right and wrong, don't you? And you, you know when you've headed in the wrong direction. In fact, even if you've never read the Bible, Romans 2 says that the Gentiles have the law of God written on their hearts, that people know. And 
And one of the dilemmas we have, I think part of one of the dilemmas we have to face in our society is there are, look, there are a number of factors that influence mental health and some of it is biological. But one of the factors is I don't think we've taught people to know the difference between their heart and what the Bible calls the flesh. And so when people make conscious choices to choose against what they know they're right, what they know is right, it does profound damage, doesn't it? Can you, can you, if you, let's not talk abstract, can you think of moments in your life where you knowingly have done what your heart knew was the wrong thing to do? Can you think of moments like that? Or, conversely, can you think of times where you knew it was right to do something but you didn't do it? Can you think of moments like that? Can you agree those moments are not superficial? Those moments are profound. And if you're to be honest, you don't have to you know, tell everybody about it, but you carry scars, don't you? From the moments you chose against your own heart. And so here we have two men choosing against their own heart. Now, Peter should have known this was coming. In chapter 26, verse 31, Jesus is saying to Peter, mate, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're going to let me down. And Peter twice says, no, I'm not. And then, as we pointed out last week, within two hours, at the very moment where the Son of God was reaching out and needing friendship, Peter was falling asleep. Uh, And... In, in, the, in the moment of crisis where Jesus is being betrayed, Peter ignores all Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies and pulls out a sword and declares war on the whole Roman Empire. Not a very long-lasting war. Um, but And, and so, so it, it would have been interesting for Peter because he already will be feeling like a failure with this in the background. But in, in, in quite a courageous move, uh, we read in one of the other Gospels that uh, it, it was Peter and, and I think John who, who follow. And, they, and, and Peter comes and sits down and watches this mock trial. Put yourself in his place. You know, you've just declared that you're going to be faithful to Jesus forever and, and just at a point where you see your mate, your, your closest friend, the one you look up to, your Lord, where you see him suffering, you fall asleep. And then when you see the moment of crisis, you ignore all, the, all that he's taught you and fall back to the old ways thinking that force is going to bring peace. And now you see these high priests, the, the, the Sanhedrin surrounding Jesus, and you see this mob descending on him. And, and you see uh, people come forward and, and take him completely out of context. I mean, they do quote Jesus. They say to him, they, in, in uh, I think it's verse 61 of chapter 26, 
I know it's a bit later, uh, where he says, oh yeah, no, it is, that is right, Uh, verse 61, uh, someone comes forward and says, this fellow, talking about Jesus, said, I'm going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, they took that as a threat against the temple, which was illegal, a, a, a threat of violence. But of course, what is actually happening, as that, that accusation is hurled, the very thing Jesus prophesied is underway. Because the makes clear is that temple he'd spoken of was his body that would be destroyed and be rebuilt again in three days. And so the the very person who is holding this accusation against Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy that Jesus had given, which is often the way. God often, God's good at judo. I don't know if you notice, he'll often use the, the strike of an enemy to defeat the enemy. You'd think Satan would learn by now, but apparently not. But it goes on and Peter sits there I think must have been feeling, I don't know what he would have been feeling, powerless, frustrated, terrified. And he sees people humiliate this man he loves. We get verse 67. They spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. I mean, hard for us to imagine. This son of God who has just told Peter, like, if I wanted to, I could snap my fingers and a whole bunch of angels would come. So imagine what it's like for Jesus now, just holding back. Like, it's a good thing none of us had this task. God didn't, because I know if, if I had that power at my fingertips and someone was treating me that way, I'm fairly sure... I wouldn't have held back. (laughs) But Jesus holds back and Peter is distraught. And uh, Jesus actually, as he he makes it clear he is the Messiah, there's notes, your sermon notes will indicate in the Old Testament where he's quoting from in that. Uh, And you can, I encourage you to, to do that work, to read back to the Old Testament. But for our sake, you know, I, I love, see, I think Peter can get a bad rap because I reckon he was trying. He was trying to be faithful. He was trying to stay with Jesus. He was bright. All the other disciples had cleared out. He was there watching it all. But a little girl comes up to him and said, you were, you were with him, weren't you? You're one of them. And he denied it in front of everybody. He said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and the people there. This bloke was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again, this time with an oath. An oath is where you you think people aren't going to believe you, so you bring in extra external support to that. So you say, 
on my mother's name or on my father's name or on the name, if you're really brave, on the name of the temple or so, you, you, you bring in someone, some extra support. Which is, and again, he is now directly countermanding what Jesus had taught him. He said, you know, don't let your yes be yes, and let your no be yo. No, don't use an oath. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then it's interesting here, it's a, then he began to call down curses. Again, we don't have a fully under, we don't understand what that means. We, we probably think he starts using foul language, but actually what he's saying is he's, he's saying they're not actually believing me. So, and the oath isn't working. So he, he makes another, he says, call down curses and he swore to them. What, what he's saying is when you're calling down curses, you're saying, may God curse me if I'm not telling the truth. He's, he's trying to bolster and he's in dangerous territory where he's trying to use God to get others to believe him, to use God to shore up his identity. And at that very moment, it's interesting, Matthew, I think, almost out of... Uh, wanting to care for Peter, I wonder, but he omits a really important detail that helps us understand what this might have meant for Peter. And just, if you're wondering, if you're watching online, the, the notes, our sermon notes are always available on the Bible app, the Version Bible app, so you can pull it up there and all this is here. And then the reference there in Luke 22. Just as Peter's words echo around the area off the walls. Jesus is being moved. And as Peter says, I know him not. Jesus' eyes rise to meet his. I think this is probably the darkest moment of Peter's life. As he has consciously acted against his heart. All that he had promised he was going to be faithful to has gone out the window. And he has sought safety rather than truth. Look, there are numbers of reasons why you would act against your heart and probably why you have, if you're to be honest. But I think we see in both Peter and in Judas, we see four of the main reasons why you will do things that are wrong, where you knowingly make choices against your own heart. We see John tells us that part of the reason... Judas did what he's, he did, uh, was he was worried about the money. And we have a world full of people and there is a strong temptation in our world to ignore your heart 
and do what you need to do for money. I've had lots of people tell me that they are just waiting to earn enough money so they can do what God asks them to do. Because in our world, money is the main thing. It's the main measure. And so it's one of the main reasons, that's why Jesus speaks so much about it, it's one of the main reasons we choose against our own hearts, isn't it? There's another reason we see in Peter in the garden. Seriously, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. We are taught, and there's this lie in our society, that somehow you've got to let what your body feels like, it's got to dominate you. You've got to be true to your feeling world. What that is teaching us to do is be immature. The, in Ephesians talks about maturity as the not being thrown around by life like a cork on the waves. If you're going to be run by your feeling world, you are going to be immature. And so one of the signs of maturity is that you can control your body. You have self-control. Peter was not able, and it's, t- and it's tough. Sometimes you're just exhausted. Sometimes your drives are, you know, whether it's your, your sex drive or your hunger or whatever, sometimes your body is screaming at you. And God, nowhere is the idea that you should pretend you don't have a body. But it's clear that as a follower of Jesus, you need to have self-control. And if your body is running the show, it will cause you to do things, and you probably can look back on your own life, where your body has caused you to do things, where you've made decisions that you know are wrong. Isn't that true? The third way you can end up being uh, untrue and compromise your own heart is what Peter did in the garden when he felt threat. You can pull out a sword and seek to attack. Become a bigger bully so the bullies won't hurt you. You can cause enough damage so that your attention can be taken away from the damage that's going on inside you. Lashing out at others because of your own insecurity is one other way that we can do damage or we can be choosing against our own heart. And here I think in, in, in the courtyard as those words ring around is the fourth, and main, fourth reason we, we make choices to not to listen to our own hearts and not to do what we know is right. And it's to avoid pain. To, av- to, to avoid the difficult moments where people might be asking things of you that threaten you. And so what Peter is doing is seeking ego comfort. Jesus saw it coming. 
But I bet you in your life there have been times where you've known the right thing to do. But it was pretty inconvenient or scary. And so you went in a different direction. Our world will tell you that there isn't right or wrong. That's wrong. Every time you make choices against what is right, you do yourself damage and you do other people around you damage. And there is only one appropriate response. We're going to talk more about the journey back on Easter Sunday morning at 6am down at Bell Reeve Beach. Can, and can I encourage you to come and join us? as we talk about Peter's journey, but his first response to seeing what he's done. What does it say in verse 75? What's his first response? What is it, in chapter 26, verse 75, what's his first response when, it's, when he sees what he's done? Yeah. The right and healthy response to you stuffing up is not to avoid it, not to pretend it didn't happen, but to let yourself feel what the Bible calls transgression. Transgression is the word that... It means we get the word from transgress. It means... There are, there are bound, God has put boundaries in this world. And what we've been talking about in all these things is transgression. When you step across a boundary, you know you ought not to step across. You have transgressed. Or conversely, when you know God is asking you to do something and you avoid doing it, that is also transgression. And what I love about Peter is he's wholehearted. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't come up with some clever rationale to explain to Jesus and everybody else why he was right. He just breaks down in tears. I think uh, part of the reason we have... Like I said, there's lots of reasons behind why we have mental health, a mental health crisis in the Western world at the moment. Some of it is physiological and biological. But some of it is we don't have enough of us breaking down in tears when we do damage to ourselves and others. We don't own our crap. We contrast that with Judas. What does Judas try and do when he realises he's transgressed? He tries to fix it. He works out his own strategy. He doesn't just say, I was wrong. He doesn't burst into tears. He bursts into action. And too many workaholics, too many addicted people, are what they're doing is running from the pain rather than turning and facing it. So 
So Judas kicks into gear and he goes to the high priest and says, here, have your money back. And they say, that's not our problem. And they go and buy a, a field with it. So Judas reckons he, he realises he won't be able to fix it, fix what he's done. And so now he turns in on himself. And this is the great lie in our society. You see, we have too many people turning in on themselves, believing the lie that they are not good as people. I want to draw on the work of uh, a lady by the name of Brene Brown. Uh, I really have appreciated her books about... uh, She's she's an Anglican lady based in America and she's a a, a social worker and she's written a lot about what life is like for people at the moment and she has helpfully defined the difference in her view between guilt and shame. You see... I don't, in her view, guilt is where you have an emotional response to doing the wrong thing. Shame is where you believe you're the wrong thing. Guilt is focused on your actions. Shame gets turned in on you. As a follower of Jesus, we know that that is an inherent lie but our society wants to keep reinforcing it and telling you that you have a problem and that's a lie for our our young people with us right now whether you're watching online or Mornington or here can I can you need to hear you are not the problem you are beautiful and God loves you And the lie that says the dumb things you've done define you is a lie from the pit of hell. Our world says there is no sin. So we've got to watch it because we stumble into this trap over and over again because of the way our world teaches us. I, I, for me, I keep coming back to 1 John 1, 8 to 10, where it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. And this is where we have to face, we need to keep talking about this, that there is a lie in the Christian church that says Christians all have it together. Yeah. And so we, we, we become hardest on each other when it becomes obvious that we don't. And we don't confront each other appropriately when we do see each other transgressing. It's easier to look the other way until it gets unwatchable and then we write each other off. Sorry, you don't get to be a follower of Jesus and do that. Following Jesus means acknowledging that we are messy. But it also means if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you get that word? All. All. God's grace means, no matter how dumb you've been, he's always there saying, come on, stop trying to fix it yourself. Will you just let me deal with your garbage? But we are fast becoming a shame-based culture. And too many of our young people are damaging themselves because they think they are the problem. They don't know how to separate themselves from the dumb stuff they've done. They don't know the difference between shame and guilt. Shame is a lie from the enemy to tell you that you're not worthy. And you need to hear it's a lie. Your shame gets dealt with on the events we're going to celebrate this Friday. And your guilt is a gift from God to remind you you're not perfect. And to remind you that you need the events of Good Friday. Judas let the lie destroy him. And I hate that in our community, people are being destroyed by that same lie. And even in the church, we can be vicious towards each other when we fail. Forget exactly how it goes in the teaching team. I think there's a line that says that church is meant to be a hospital for sinners, not a, you know, I think a playground for the saints or something. I can't remember how it goes, but you get the idea. Listen to this. Titus 3. When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we've done. But because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. If Judas had just hung on for two more days, his story would have been different. Satan wants to trap you in your moments of pain. He wants you to believe the lie that somehow you're not worthy. But he also wants to make sure you don't deal with those transgressions that hold you back. 
he uses them, he leverages them to feed the lie. Grace means your past doesn't have to define your future. No matter how old or how young you are, the message of the cross is freedom and grace. We're going to invite the band up at Mornington, but just before they come, I'm going to give it just a moment's silence. Because I know for me, I've got to keep coming back to this truth. I know I can believe Satan's lies. How If I look back on some of the, even the moments I have confessed, he'll bring them to my mind and say, you know, how could you have done that? And he'll want to define me by my worst moments. Jesus comes in, Matt, you're not defined by your worst moments. You're defined by my love. And sometimes I know, as a follower of Jesus, I've been avoiding, facing moments of transgression. And those moments can be little. They can just be being grumpy and (laughs) self-centred and getting annoyed that we're watching a TV show I don't like. Not that it would ever happen. (laughs) Uh, Or they can be big. Where my words have ripped somebody apart. I know as a follower of Jesus, I need to not pretend I'm without sin but come back to the foot of the cross and leave my garbage there. So let's just take a moment, just quietly, and if that's you, if you know that you have transgressed recently and you won't be Robinson Crusoe, but behind me and at Mornington we have a cross It's not there just for decoration. It's there to remind us where the source of life is. So I invite you just to consciously imagine yourself bringing your garbage to the foot of that cross. And if you've been sucked into Satan's lie that somehow says you're not worthy, that somehow you're the problem, Tell him to rack off and remind him that you are God's kid and Jesus loves you. This you know because the Bible tells you so. It's going to allow a moment of silence, then I'll pray and then Robin's going to lead us in a beautiful song. Jesus, thank you for your love. That casts out all of our garbage. Thank you for your cross. That brings healing to our pain. Jesus, please help us be a group of people who have the courage 
to acknowledge when we've crossed the line and to, like Peter, burst into tears appropriately, to own the pain, to own the mistakes, and as we do, to experience your freedom and healing. Thank you for your cross and all that it means. And Jesus, as we come into this Easter week, can you help us as we travel through Good Friday and Easter morning, And next week's Easter service, can you, in a fresh way, help us understand the incredible truth that the battle is won and life is available and Satan doesn't have the right to define our stories anymore. We need your help, Jesus. For my brothers and sisters watching online here at Lena Valley at Mornington, please help Help us have the courage to be honest and lay our garbage at your feet. We ask this in your name. Amen.